0: Mr. President, you have stated as your goal that America should remain the world's strongest force for peace, liberty, prosperity, and security so that we can build a future for the next generation.
1: All nations in the democratic community have a responsibility to make it clear through our actions and our words that efforts to overturn constitutional regimes or steal elections are unacceptable those who care deeply about America's engagement and indispensable leadership in the world, you will find no stronger advocate for that cause than Samantha. As the
0: most powerful and inspiring country on this earth, we have a critical role to play in insisting that the institution meet the necessities of our time. It can do so only with American leadership.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Bell by the long 1990s. So this is our third installment talking about American foreign policy and American interventionism in the 1990s. We focused a lot on the USA, but of course there were other international organizations that were charged with helping to keep the peace in the world that didn't themselves cease to exist at the end of the Cold War unlike say the USSR. We spoke a little bit about the about the UN in our last installment and how if I'm right in saying this, no one was really paying much attention to them. Right, Em?
0: Look, I, I think that is right. You know, the UN in the 1990s is kind of sidelined. You know, it, it has massive failures in places like Rwanda in, and Somalia. But I think, you know, when we get to our conversation, Chloe, about international environmentalism, we will see pretty similar themes. Okay. So power really
2: does – in power in the world lies with the United States – But that's also not to say that the USA doesn't have allies and support. So, we're also talking about global actors like Europe and the European Union and NATO. They're really important when we turn to our next case study in the the troubles and the failures of American interventionism in the 1990s, and that's in the former Yugoslavia, which was, of course, NATO's first international intervention. Em, can you tell me more about what happened there?
0: You're right that it was um, NATO's first intervention, Chloe, and I think a lot of the time that's forgotten because, as you kind of so clearly outlined, the United States is so is the sole super- superpower at the time. Um, I'm going to start this again with with another caveat to say I am not an expert in this conflict, and it is in- incredibly complex and ongoing, I have to say, but I will give it my best shot. So we are, of course, talking about Yugoslavia, which during the Cold War was a communist nation. It was, was not a member, it's important to say, it was not a member of the Soviet Union, but it was communist. At the end of the Cold War, as kind of predicted by Francis Fukuyama, um, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, but begins to disintegrate as as ethnic groups that were held together by a communist dictatorship start to declare their independence. So Slovenia and Croatia declare independence first, and Slovenia kind of um, slips out fairly quietly, largely because it's populated by a kind of homogenous ethnic group. That's not the case for Serbia and Croatia. Serbia and Croatia fight a war and about 20,000, mostly civilians, die in that war. And we begin to see ethnic cleansing in that war. The situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which declares independence in 1992, is just as messy, if not messier. And that's because that country is populated by Muslims, Catholic Croatians and Orthodox Serbians. So the Bosnian-Serbian leader starts the ethnic cleansing of Muslims in Bosnia. So we see mass movement of refugees and we also see the advent of concentration camps once again in Europe.
2: This is an interesting point to pick up on what Europe was seeing in the former Yugoslavia and Europe's role in this, because obviously, you know, the the issue of having refugees and concentration camps once more again in Europe's backyard, if not strictly in formal European territory, that poses big questions for the European Union, which of course was founded
0: to prevent war in Europe in the future. Which, of course, leads us to the question of of why Europe doesn't intervene.
2: The simple answer to that is that Europe doesn't actually have the force, the capacity, the standing army to do so. So if we think about Europe in the 1990s, we can see that, you know, the elements of political integration are starting to happen. We can also see that economic integration is starting to get underway. We will have the euro adopted as the common currency of the European Union in 1999. But Europe has never had an army. A lot of European states, however, are members of NATO, and that's something that will matter a little bit later in this story, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And that is, of course, because the United States is a member of, of NATO. It's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And and we see, I think, similar um, questions arise in the United States, you know, just as you said, in Europe, Chloe, because we do we are seeing advent of, of concentration camps, of, of starvation of mass movements of refugees by by 93 about one hundred and fifty thousand people have died and and this is in contrast to Rwanda which we spoke about in our last installment this is getting enormous press attention and that's partly because of of just one journalist Christiane Amanpour who people might still recognize she still has her own show on on CNN she was a journalist covering this at the time and and she saw it as as kind of her generation's Vietnam so that coverage um those, those images were having a big impact in the US. But there's still a real reluctance on the part of the United States to get involved, partly because of what we've talked about earlier, um, because the Cold War is over. So, so many important foreign policy types don't see a need for the United States to get involved. The Bush Administration Secretary of State, James A. Baker, said, we don't have a dog in this fight, so there's kind of very little interest. But there is pressure. There's pressure in Europe. There's pressure in the United States. And that leads to the adoption of an arms embargo, which you know is a, is a common, I, th- I suppose, a common tactic in these kind of conflicts where there's a refusal to sell arms to anybody who's involved in this conflict. But in this case, what that does is basically freeze an existing imbalance where one side is in possession of enormous weaponry and one side is not. And that leads to a siege in Srebrenica, which I think many people would recognise the name of that town. Srebrenica comes under siege and it falls to the Serbians in 1994 and they embark on a campaign of ethnic cleansing, which is visible across the world. It's getting this kind of coverage um, on CNN. And Bill Clinton is outraged by this, both because it is of course horrific, but also importantly in this case because he felt it was making the United States look bad, it was making the US look weak. And that's why I think in the end we see this intervention, but it, it, it comes partly because of the US's reluctance to get involved, it becomes a NATO intervention and not a United States unilateral operation.
1: Last week, the warring factions in Bosnia reached a peace agreement. As a result of our efforts in Dayton, Ohio, and the support of our European and Russian partners. Tonight, I want to speak with you about implementing the Bosnian Peace Agreement and why our values and interests as Americans require that we participate. Let me say at the outset, America's role will not be about fighting a war. It will be about helping the people of Bosnia to secure their own peace agreement. Our mission will be limited, focused, and under the command of an American general. In fulfilling this mission, we will have the chance to help stop the killing of innocent civilians, especially children, and at the same time, to bring stability to Central Europe, a region of the world that is vital to our national interests. It is the right thing to do.
2: Emma, I I think it's probably worth going into this a little bit more. Can you tell me a little bit more about NATO or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization?
0: Sure, so so NATO North Atlantic Treaty Organization is um, founded in 1949, so at the very beginning of the Cold War, and it is, to, to grossly oversimplify it, it's basically the Western response to something called the Warsaw Pact, which is an agreement between the Soviet Union and kind of communist allied states to defend each other in the event of attack. So NATO is a direct response to that, where each party agrees that in the event of an attack on one, all others will respond
2: Okay, so what we've got in this instance is an intervention by NATO, which of course course includes European powers like France and Germany. So what we end up is, rather than the US going it alone, is a NATO intervention. And that, of course, includes powerful European nations like France and Germany and Britain, which still counted as part of
0: Europe then. (sighs) That's right. It did. Brexit's still a long way away in this story. Um, And you're right, then NATO intervenes and eventually there's a flawed peace agreement um, but that's not the end of that story. The next conflict to arise is in Kosovo where the Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic, which is a name I think that will be familiar to many people, um, is engaged in his own campaign of ethnic cleansing and that prompts a second NATO intervention where the war is fought primarily in the air and it is by the standards of the day, incredibly precise. You know, NATO is targeting um, places down to the building. Occasionally they get it wrong, but for the most part it's very precise and not a single NATO soldier dies in this operation. So it is ostensibly, you know, from that summary, you could take it as a success, but there is no clean resolution. There's no satisfactory peace agreement. I think I think many people would argue that. And, it, and it's a conflict that, as you alluded to, Chloe, still... Europe is still grappling with today.
2: Yeah, and I guess as, as kind of a simple illustration of how this still plays out in European politics, the issue of, Kos- of recognition of Kosovo as a sovereign nation is still an issue not only for Kosovo and its, you know, its attempts to join the European Union, but also attempts by Serbia and other, and other former Yugoslavian nations to enter the, Euro- the European Union. So... This kind of are there, are there any lessons for american interventionism coming out of
0: this mess? I think that's a that's a funny question for you to ask Chloe because I know you hate the construction of of lessons from history uh, you know which is completely fair enough and I think this kind of illustrates really clearly why you know, asking for lessons from history can be a really fraught exercise because the trouble is that whatever lessons you want to draw from all of the conflicts that we've talked about, from the failure of the US to intervene, from the US's interventions in the former Yugoslavia, all of those lessons are, are quite different and, and possibly even contradictory because they don't resolve that tension between you know whether the US should act its ideals, whether it should be this kind of policeman intervening everywhere and stopping people from dying because it can't do that satisfactorily and also you know of its own interest that whether it should just be kind of purely cold and calculating and not intervene in places like Rwanda because it's not in its interest and allow people to die in that way but then also kind of face the, that I think justifiable, justifiable criticism that it has faced because of places like Rwanda so I guess my my answer to that question is that you know we don't really know what the lessons are so so drawing any lessons from that those conflicts i think is particularly fraught that has not stopped people from trying though
2: well that's my next question is if people haven't you know if there are no good lessons that can be taken from this history of conflict in the 1990s then what perhaps are the bad lessons that have been learned how has this informed the u.s's conduct in the in, on the world stage in the 20 the 20 plus years since Kosovo.
0: Well, I mean I suppose the lessons that people like Samantha Power drew out of places like Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia where they suggested that the United States absolutely had to intervene and it had to intervene, you know, in the case of Yugoslavia much earlier than it did and that if it had to do that unilaterally as I said, you know, then so be it. Those arguments that are made successfully I think in the 1990s and still sometimes today are turned on their head in the late 1990s and early 2000s by neoconservatives people like Colin Powell Dick Cheney and George Bush jr. they use the same arguments against progressive I think when they decide to go after Iraq so what what those liberal interventionist arguments do is make it very difficult to counter neoconservatives who are pursuing this unilateral role for the United States in the world
2: so What you're alluding to there, Em, is another, is is a whole other history that I think we want to cover in a future episode, and that is the history of the the first Gulf War, of 9 11, and Iraq. And indeed, I, I would probably suggest that that's how we're going to wrap up this series about the 1990s. However, in the next episode of Barely Getting By the Long 1990s, we are going to pay some overdue attention to our own shores and talk about Australia in the 1990s. Hi, it's Chloe here. Emma spoke a lot about the US's foreign policy in the 90s in this episode. We're going to bring you another perspective in a bonus ep where I'll be speaking to Dr. Charlie Hunt from RMIT University about the UN's role in peace and war in the 90s and what that means for today. The episode will drop this Friday,
0: so watch out for it. Fairly Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.